Welcome to another episode of From Another Zero. Hello, I am Alejandra Enciso Dardashti, recording from the Tijuana-San Diego border, formerly Mexican territory and recognizing Kumeyaay territory. So we're going to be doing that from now on. We are learning. I'm so grateful for our listeners. We just started in June and we have people from New York, from Boston, from London. We have Dominican Republic. We have people listening all over the globe and I love it. And I would love if you would leave us DMs on our social media at From Another Zero, Zero With Number, or on Facebook, From Another Zero, Zero With Number, our YouTube channel. A reminder that each podcast episode that drops, the Zoom call or video of that episode goes live two weeks after or so. Today, I'm talking to producing director Eric King-Louis. He is the producing director of the La Jolla Playhouse in San Diego, and we are going to talk about their innovation series, Fortaleza, which I did the pod view of Fortaleza in the last episode, along with Niceties of Moxie Theater. Pod view is the new branch of From Another Zero. So we're not going to be doing reviews here. We're going to do pod views, which is a little bit of my POV of when I saw the work, the piece, the play, and let you all know what I thought. I think that's the most democratic way of saying it and putting it out there. Thank you again for the support. We are a blog as well. This came out as a blog first from another zero zero with number from another zero.com we have surpassed the hundred thousand mark we are very proud very happy for that thank you thank you for reading thank you for sharing thank you for listening yes this is from another zero here we go Hello, Eric King. Hi, Alejandra. Welcome to From Another Zero. Thank you. Everybody, he is the producing director at the San Diego La Jolla Playhouse. For our listeners that are not local, we work together at the Old Globe Theater, also in San Diego. And thank you. Thank you for coming. I of want. Course. How are you, first of all? How are you? <laughs> uh, uh, I always answer, I'm doing okay given the circumstances. I'm, I'm surviving. You know, we're, it's a weird time. It's a weird time. It's not just a weird time to be in the theater. It's a weird time to be a person of color in this country. It's a weird time to be a person in this country. Yeah. So yeah, uh, I'm surviving. I'm surviving, which I think is good. Occasionally yeah. thriving, mostly surviving. I know, right? Because everything changes day by day and yeah. you don't know what to expect and then how you're going to roll with that punch, literally mm -hmm. a punch. I'm glad that you're doing okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, for people yeah. that don't know, Eric started at the Playhouse not that long ago, right? How long have you been Two over there? Two years ago. Are you kidding me? Two yeah. years? Two years ago. Oh my uh -huh. God. It's like I think it's like this month, two years. <laughs> I know, I know. Where's the time gone? I'm like, oh, he's been there for like six months, you know? No, oh it's been God. two years. Oh, so you were the associate artistic director at the Old Globe Theater. I was. And that happened for a while. You were there. Yeah, I was, I was at the Globe for seven years. Mm -hmm. um, I started as associate producer and then moved into the associate artistic director position. 
And uh, it was incredible. Yeah, I moved out not knowing a single person in San Diego. Mm -hmm. On my first day, the guy who hired me resigned and my life was thrown into chaos. Um, but there's an incredible group of people who work over there that allowed me to figure out how to navigate without a boss for a year. Um, and then Barry arrived, who I'd worked with in New York, because I was at the Public Theater in New York for exactly. three years before I came uh -huh. out to the Globe. And so we had this really wonderful shorthand when he stepped in. Um, and he really brought a lot of the work that he was doing there to the Globe, and I think really helped bring it in, in its own way the globe back to its roots of a, of a theater that was really sort of serving the community. Mm -hmm. um, and it was an incredible time to be there during those first couple of years that he sort of arrived and helping him uh, and the institution really sort of shift focus uh, in a really exciting way that I'm glad to see continues and thrives, of course, uh, with freedom there. Mm -hmm. And that whole arts engagement team and the, the, just the whole staff, I think, really embraced the idea of just reimagining, rethinking, and, and re-understanding sort of what a nonprofit does in the city. Exactly. Oh, and everybody, my dear listeners, we have an episode with Freedom. So you do. I listened to it. I listened to it. And I loved yeah. it. I recommend it. It's going to be much more exciting than the one we're about. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, you were a New Yorker. You were a New York. I was. I was born in Queens. Yes. I was <laughs> uh, born in Queens, New York, from Long Island Jewish Hospital. My parents are uh, from New York, have like relatively thick New York accents. I somehow lost it. Uh, and when I was five, we moved actually to New Jersey because my dad's friend was selling his house. And we moved to a predominantly white little suburb in New Jersey. And we were probably uh -huh. one of the first families of color to move to that area. Uh -huh. Um, and it wow. was, uh, yeah, it was, it was an adventure, uh, <laughs> certainly. And I think, um, what it did for me, I think there were two things I sort of came about. One is I, I grew a very thick skin pretty quickly because, you know, as a kid you get picked on. Mm -hmm. Um, and my mom is a very no nonsense person. And I remember getting picked on when I was a kid and she went to the school and was like, you better fix this. But she also said to me, like, you need to fight your battles. I can't always be here. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, I think it's partially why I'm so outspoken. I think a lot of it comes from sort of that experience and my parents are just outspoken people in general. Mm -hmm. um, and also I think it's, it's really guided me to this career that I have now where I really want to help shepherd voices that don't usually get the spotlight because certainly I didn't feel that growing up, not just sort of where I lived, but in theater, in the sort of movies and film and TV, I didn't see a lot of representation of people who looked like me. And so I've really committed my career to changing that or helping to change that and really lifting up those artists who are exciting who are telling stories that are culturally specific. Before we continue, I was, I was telling Eric before we started recording that I live in an area that makes me feel like I'm in Brooklyn and no offense <laughs> to Brooklyn, but just it's like the tow truck and you know the garbage truck and the neighbor and the dog. So if you hear any of this, please, I'm so sorry. My mic didn't work. My headphones broke. I'm just like a mess but I want to get this content out to you. So here I am. <laughs> it's ambiance. It's just, it's ambiance. Right? Ambiance that adds to the conversation. Totally. That's what I say, because then some podcasters are obviously respectfully 
with everybody and to everybody. Some get really intense and are like, you're not using the so-and-so microphone. You're not using the so-and-so platform. And guys, I'm sorry. I'm a rookie at this. I'm trying to get better, but I just, I just want to do my show. <laughs> you also just need to say it's a pandemic. That's it's a pandemic, true. everybody. That too. <laughs> exactly. Everybody. So Eric, you, yeah. you said that you, you committed your career or you, you made that choice to see more of you represented on stage. Why do you think that is? Why? Do, I mean, it's, uh, I just, yeah, want to ask this question. Yeah. Why do you think that is that we don't see each other represented on stage and also in the yeah. high levels of? Totally. Mm -hmm. I, I think that at least if I can talk about theater, theater for so long, mm -hmm. I think has been seen as this thing that is sort of high art, not that theater isn't high art, mm -hmm. but I think this idea of high art comes with a lot of sort of baggage, mm -hmm. especially racially of sort of where does the money come from, who's paying, um, what's gonna sell. And I think it's interesting over the last couple of years, you've seen this shift start happening in the country. Cause look, the demographics are changing. Like there's no going back. More diversity is on its way. It's already here and it's only going to become large, a larger, larger, larger part of the population. And so you see something like Black Panther, you see something like Crazy Rich Asians, you know, you see these films that are go coming out and they're making millions and millions and millions of dollars. And so I think this, this argument that diversity doesn't sell is completely false. And I think in the, the theater though, doesn't have the budget because it's just smaller budgets, it's smaller houses, you can't go out as wide. It's not something that like, an audience has necessarily been groomed and built and always welcomed into that when you do a play of color, it's immediate like, okay, how do we get the Asians in? How do we get the Latinx people in? Totally. And you're like, but they weren't invited before. So I why do they want to come now? Yeah. And they may, but yeah. like you have to think about it from a more holistic approach. So I think, again, this argument that like diversity doesn't sell, we know is false. And so I think we need to now relook at our models and say, okay, so how do we get that audience in and keep them and mm -hmm. want them to try it out? I mean, it's, it's interesting. I think for uh, us as an organization, I think partially because we do so much without walls programming, we've really said that we are an organization. We're not a set of buildings. We look at our audience as the audience that is doing Portelais at home, you know, mm -hmm. or one of our digital pieces that David Reynoso did. Yep. Or we look at an audience that's coming in to see Cambodian rock band. Mm -hmm. You should have seen it. It's really good. Although it's about to go on tour and I think it's going to be in LA whenever this all ends. Whenever. So go, up, like... go and see it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, we look at an audience that's, that, that it went to Liberty Station and happened upon something we were doing as part of our Without Walls Festival that was free and watched 30 minutes of it. Audiences aren't just the audience that's paying to buy a ticket to go see one of our shows in our theaters. Our audiences have to expand past that, you know? And I think once you get that name out and once you get the brand out, I think it becomes a different thing. Because I, again, I think there's this preconceived notion that theater is what the rich white people do. Totally. And that's, and that's part of that is because it has been that, but also part of that is because organizations haven't specifically countered that narrative. We have to, if we have any, any chance of honestly, 
of succeeding, when we come back, mm -hmm. audience trends are going to look very different. It's up, it's Not just time. because demographics are changing, <laughs> but because of the pandemic. Yeah. When we get back up and running, our older white audience might not feel comfortable coming back immediately. I mm -hmm. hope they do. Mm -hmm. Because I think when we reopen, we're going to reopen with a real safety plan and when it is safe to bring come back. But I think we have to start appealing to the younger demographic, the more diverse demographic. And it starts with our programming. It starts with our messaging. I'm sure we'll talk about it today, but it starts with like things like our action plan mm -hmm. to specifically say this is who we are as an organization. I think people are smart. I think people are smart because so, they're marketed so much because of our phones. We, we like get so much marketing on our phones and our social yeah. media. People know what companies are doing now. And I think mm -hmm. you can't just talk the talk, you have to walk it. Yeah, well, and then in your talking, your phone is listening and they'll throw it at you anyway, yeah. <laughs> without you That's asking. That's true. I wanna um, layer some things here that you've been talking about and um, give my, POV <laughs> because what the wow the wow festival to start for people who are not familiar the without walls festival is this amazing idea that La Jolla Playhouse came up with where you had yes you had plays outdoors and stuff like that but you also had a play in an elevator that was mm -hmm. 10 minutes you had a play in a car and there was a line around the block with the cars just going in a line and you, the actors were in the front and you were in the back and you would see the drama or whatever unfold and it was very creative and wonderful. And there was other things because La Jolla is, uh, I don't even know because I'm awful in directions and geography, but it's, it's, it's close to the shore or whatever. <laughs> so the weather, you never know. So we were doing this, we were in this play that was open and there was grass. So you would have like the humidity come down and then the humidity from the grass come up mm -hmm. and it, it, we were all wet and, <laughs> and the play was very surreal and heavy. And I was like, I don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> but what, why I'm saying this, it's because it adds to this experience and it adds to the dialogue and why are we doing this and yeah. why is it and i think that at arts and any in any sort of form shape need to do that and it's more than just the entertainment value i think that's right i mean i think if the pandemic teaches us anything about just the idea of theater in general it's the idea that we're bringing people together to experience and share something mm -hmm. and that may be something that's purely escapist and that may be something that pushes you to really think, or it may it be something that makes you uncomfortable, or it may be a story from a culture you know nothing about, or a story from a culture you know everything about. Like, it's in its purest sense, it's the idea of bringing people together to share some sort of experience that's live, that's ephemeral. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's it's what's been hard about this time, I think for a lot of us who love theater and who work in theater, is that we can't bring people together. Yeah. And I'm deeply proud of the digital work we're doing. And I actually think it, it, we found a way to sort of try to have that tangible human experience, even though we're on a screen. And a lot of it has been really successful, but I do miss just sitting in a room with three or four or 500 other people watching performers create a story. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's hard. 
it makes me sad. <laughs> it is. It's very sad. And sometimes when uh, you see some works through the screen that are really well made, it gives you that nostalgia and you're like, oh, yeah. I miss it. I had so much fun watching this that I miss it even more. Totally. Yeah. Totally. yeah I mean, when, when the pandemic started, I like couldn't watch any taped live theater. <laughs> It just made me so unhappy. Yeah, it was like a, a withdrawal type of thing. It, yeah. It was, it was very sad. And again, for people that, that don't know, La Jolla Playhouse, along with the Old Globe in San Diego, they're considered kind of sort of incubators for these big productions and that, that then go to Broadway. And the Playhouse has been responsible for uh, little works like Jersey Boys, or come from away, rent, it's stuff that people wouldn't even imagine that it came from there. And that, that's also really cool. And, and I think in San Diego, yeah. we're really proud of that. It's great, yeah. And we're deeply proud of the work we're doing. I'm proud to have worked at the Globe and the Playhouse. And, you know, I mean, it's interesting. We were talking about sort of uh, live theater and theater on tape. You know, my boss, Chris Ashley, right now is in New York City on Broadway in the theater filming Diana without an audience for Netflix. And so, oh, yeah, yeah, they yeah. came out with that news. Yeah, so they're, they're literally, as, as we're talking, yeah, we mm -hmm. premiered it. As we're talking, they're in a theater on Broadway without an audience filming it. First showed a stream that hasn't actually opened on Broadway. And so, you know, I think it's, it's, we're finding ways, right, to adapt. I think you're going to see more of that, especially after sort of the Hamilton thing. Yeah. Um, I think you're going to see more theater on, on film. And I think that's great because look, there's a large segment of the population that can't afford to buy a ticket. Even if it's 20 or 25 bucks, they can't afford to buy a ticket. So I'm glad we're getting the arts out in a more, in its own way, democratic way. And I hope that certainly, uh, I fell in love with theater because I saw Into the Woods on PBS when they aired it in great performances. That was the spark for me. It wasn't actually seeing a live piece of theater. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited for it, but I, I deeply want to get back into the theater. When we talk about uh, this uh, theater through the screen or however people want to call it, because there's this whole debate with Hamilton and movie and not movie and not theater, which I really don't care to discuss because whatever. <laughs> there's been a subscription program called Broadway HD Forever, where they've had yeah. recorded plays, musicals uh, yeah. from all over that you have them from London, from Argentina and uh, yeah. the States, obviously. So it is not new. It was just no. that people were not as familiar with it. And I think that also there's, there, it's, it's a tray of options, right? Where you're like Netflix or Broadway HD. And mm -hmm. many people are like, well, Netflix or Apple TV or, yeah. or whatever, yeah. all of the streaming platforms out there. And then with the, the, the cultural thing, I always want to emphasize it. And it's not me criticizing it or attacking it. I just want to point out the differences. I am learning, guys. I am learning. Because the United States slash American Caucasian way is is very much, uh, we see it that way. I'm a Mexican woman living in the States. I'm Mexican, Mexican. I'm not first generation or anything like that. I moved to the States old. <laughs> you know, well, I'm a border girl. So I was uh, uh, crossing back and forth, but it's, it's a lot of, of, of labels. Uh, in yeah. Mexico, it's, it's also for rich people. It's theater is seen, seen that way mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I can't afford that. Or I'm not welcome there. Or I look different from the rest mm -hmm. of the people, or I don't have mm -hmm. the clothing 
I'm going to stand out in a bad way in those types of things. But marketing wise, it's not to, oh, you know, the white people or the darker people or whichever different people, the, the, the marketing is not that way. It's just like a boomerang type of thing, or just you throw it out there and people will come. You know, it's, it's more of an economic aspect, I think, more of labels. And I think that, that with this pandemic and these conversations on the table, that also should shift. Because, like I said I, uh, in the last episode, every play should be talked about with everybody. And then people should have their choice and say if they want or if they don't want to see it. Yeah, I also think you have to talk about yourself as an organization. Mm-hmm. Because the plays come and go and the organization is a thing that stays, right? Sure. So we have something called the Playhouse Leadership Council, which has been in existence for a couple of years and is made up of a diverse set of community leaders who meet once a month to hear about, come see the work, talk to the artist, to learn about the work that we're doing on a regular basis, to then talk to their communities about us, not just this specific play at the theater and I think that's the sort of big thing that we're trying to figure out how to do Mm -hmm. because at the heart of it we're a nonprofit institution that generates new work and serves the community Mm -hmm. and so it's about getting people to feel an affection and a connection to the organization not just the play right so it goes back to the idea of the brand like your brand and how do you talk about your brand because the plays come and go but you are the sort of the thing that sort of remains the constant and I hope we can continue to do that shifting of sort of talking about the organization and I hope other nonprofits can too because it's it's how we're gonna again not to be doom and gloom but it's how we survive yeah, it's a big budget issue and a big money issue. And with all the furloughs and all this uncertainty and you, you don't know where it's going to go. And it's, it is sad. So if people can help out and are listening, please reach out. And $1, $2, it yeah. really, really does make a difference. And speaking of, of this shift, mm-hmm. you, the La Jolla Playhouse is part of this series called We Are Listening. That's part yeah. of other um, theater companies in the area, in the city. Uh, how, how's that been? You've, you guys have a few episodes it's, already. It's great. Yeah. And I want to say it really started with Ahmed Dense at San Diego Rep. Um, mm-hmm. There's a series that they started and really felt like there was a need. And Ahmed really felt like there was a need in the community to talk with other, you know, Black artists, Black art administrators who work in the theater about what they were feeling, what they were experiencing, what, what change they wanted to see happen. Um, and we've been talking with the Rep and with the Globe about finding ways for us to partner together. Mm-hmm. to sort of really help serve the field, serve the community. And this was one of the things we've talked about. And so, yeah, we've come on board as sort of co-presenter partners with them. Uh, Jacole Kitchen, our fabulous uh, artistic programs manager and local casting director is now co-hosting with Ahmed. I know Freedom uh, is going to be hopping on board too. And so they're curating an incredible list of artists from around the country Mm-hmm. Um, just to talk openly about what's happening. I think we're all trying to understand how to navigate, not just obviously the pandemic, but the real rallying cry for social justice change in the field and in the country. And um, it's exciting. It's, it's a really great series. We're proud to be a part of it. 
And so I just get to be a, a cheerleader fan for Jacole on our end. She's taken that thing and run with it, with the, with Freedom and Ahmed. It's really great. I'm excited about it. Oh, I love it. Yeah. More people. Again, the dialogue needs to be happening through all directions. If the rep did it, I mean, San Diego Repertory Theater is another nonprofit uh, in the city. And uh, in my opinion, they were doing really good stuff. And then for me, again, as a Mexican woman, there was a shift. That's how I saw it. And I think sometimes I don't know how to express myself and not sound awful or offensive or whatever. But I feel that uh, with the Mexican culture, there's, they started doing a little bit of a lack face and I'm not happy with that. But hopefully we'll have them on and we will create a dialogue and discuss because it's not about attacking. It's about talking and discussing. Yeah. Have you talked to anybody over there? You should. I did. I sent a letter uh, last year with the play Bad Hombres, Good Wives that I thought it was absolutely awful because it um, highlighted or it glorified the drug cartels, which is very sensitive for us and mm -hmm. other Latin American countries, you know, like Colombia yeah. and stuff like that. And uh, they also made fun of pedophilia with Catholicism, mm -hmm. stuff like that. And uh, something happens, it, it, us Mexicans, you know, we were conquered like a lot of people by the Spaniards and we have an identity issue that comes from generation to generation and then when you move to the states and you're neither mexican or american which happens also with other cultures you you have that void so when you try to fill it and you go to a play that's mocking or that is uh taking advantage of that lack of identity there's a responsibility there and it, mm -hmm. it has to be it, it has to be assumed and i think that they told me it was a satire and that I didn't understand the satire and that that's what happens. But really, that's not it. That's, that's my end. I'm telling you because you're my friend and yeah, this no, is my you're, podcast. You're me, yeah. No, and, and, I, and I, I know and love a lot of people over there. So after this podcast, I can definitely talk to you about some people who may be excited to talk to you on your podcast about that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this is an open space for everybody. I, I don't want yeah. it to be Alejandra and friends, but it is the first <laughs> season, so we have to start somewhere. <laughs> and hey, we, I, we live in San Diego, so let's put San Diego more on the yeah, map. And not I agree. Because of its I beaches, right? Agree. And it's California yeah. burritos. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, oh, okay. Let's also talk about the digital innovation night that's that's coming yeah. up um, with the pandemic. Everything has to go. Have, every, everything yeah, has I mean, digital. yeah, our innovation night has been a fundraiser that we've been doing for years and it's always been in person and it's a way to bring sort of people who live in the sort of science and medical world together to celebrate art and also to celebrate sort of the medical and science and, you know, innovation that's happening awesome. in our city as well. And it's credible. And, and, you know, this year we're really honoring the companies that are on the front lines of fighting COVID. And, you wow. know, again, with, with going digital, everything sort of changes and opens up in their own way. And so I think we're, we're allowed to now have a sort of international audience. And so the sort of headline event of the night is that we're doing a talk with some major scientists in the city, along with Chris Ashley, my boss, our artistic director, and Jeffrey Seller, who's the lead producer on Hamilton, about creating art in the time of COVID. And so I think talking about how are we shifting some of our art digitally, but also what does coming back to the theater look like post COVID? 
uh, and during COVID. I'm really excited about that uh, talk. It's going to be a really fun event. We're going to be premiering a new Digital Without Walls piece during it. And so that's taking place on October 14th. Tickets are on sale on the La Jolla Playhouse website. Yes. LaJollaPlayhouse.org branding. O-R-G. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to put it on the episode notes. We include all right. those links on there. So you just scroll down and click and there you are. And speaking of this uh, innovation mm -hmm. series, back in the day, uh, the Playhouse did a play titled Ether Dome. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how it did. I don't know if it did well or not, but I loved it. <laughs> yeah. I loved it. It was a straight play, but what I loved the most was the surrounding events that they did mm -hmm. for it. And they did that. They did like, I don't know, uh, uh, medicine students one night or, you know, the scientific uh, scientists the other night. And I yeah. just, and I am not, you know, obviously a doctor, a scientist, nothing. And I was so excited with it all. <laughs> No, that's good. You know, it, it's it's funny. We um we did these focus groups at the end of literally a year ago. Um, you know that like I'm behind a wall, I'm behind a mirror, and I'm watching people talk. I love oh, them. Yeah, Fantastic. Yeah. You learn a lot. You actually learn a lot. Totally. But one of the big things that I heard through all the focus group is that are is that people come to the playhouse to continue their education. I, I heard that from a lot of sort of the older subscribers, older audience members who come. Uh, and I think we really take that idea to heart, right? So I'm glad I'm, I'm glad that you actually went to and knew about the surround events because it's a big thing that we try to work on is the work doesn't doesn't just stay on the stage. It also uh, ignites other conversations, be it about science and medicine or be it about, you know, hopefully in the next couple of years, more social justice action and things yeah. like that. Um, I think it's important. I think this 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 art form is living and breathing. You don't sort of, just to walk away from it when the when the lights come back up. Exactly. And so yeah, we try to do more events. We're trying to figure out how to do more content surrounding the things, how to get more local artists and sort of academics involved. And so yeah, I'm excited about it. Yeah, I love that play. And it proves, I mean, you always say that when you're you're in theater, you're not like a point of reference, but this is a point of reference that it didn't have to do anything with me. And I absolutely loved it. I was obsessed with it. Yeah. I wouldn't even go online and see what's the next event. Let me see what they're doing, what they come came up with. I was very excited. And um, let me see here. Well, let's talk about producing director tell us a little bit about yeah. what you do day to day and how how, how that looks now i don't want to laugh but how does that look now yeah you know the jaime castaneda was in the job previous to me and he was associate artistic director and he yeah. very much so is a really smart artist a really wonderful director and so when i came into the job i said i don't direct like i am i am an artist administrator and so i think i need to come in with a sort of a little bit of a different mindset of how to approach the job and i think what you really need is a producer mm -hmm. you know we do six shows a year but we also do without walls we do so much development uh you know chris directs giant musicals yeah. there's a lot of attention that he needs to give to the artistic life of the theater with gabe green who's our director of artistic development mm -hmm. of the sort of future and the planning and the work in, in the weeds with the artists artistically 
And I was like, I need to be the one who's working with the production staff. I need to work with the marketing staff. I need to really keep an eye on the day-to-day producing maintenance of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why we changed it to producing director. So my job is really overseeing the minutia day-to-day operations of sort of our artistic producing vision and um, management of the department. So Chris can be forward thinking, you know, the one in the conversations with the artist, et cetera. Um, and so my job in its own way sort of really reports to Chris, but really honestly reports to Chris and Debbie Buckhold, managing director, because I'm bridging the gap, you know, between management and artistic. And it's great. I love it. And, you know, when we were in, in production, it was making sure everybody was doing okay and keeping the productions that were in rehearsal in tech and previews and performances sort of running smoothly with the rest of the staff, but also sort of thinking ahead and working with the staff to lay out the tracks for the plays that were coming. I think my goal is always to be ahead of the game because I just want the artists to arrive and just do their work. I don't want them to have to worry about like, oh my God, we missed that deadline because I was ahead of the ball on the deadline and was bugging them to get that deadline met, you know, so we could do what we do. And I think, honestly, now it's still a lot of that. It's still a lot of laying the track work out for what's to come. We just don't know when that thing is going to come. And of course, we've been doing so much digital work. But I think when I return, there's going to be an even more importance on staying ahead of deadlines, because inevitably, I think, all nonprofit theaters are going to have to do less. Yeah, things are going to get a little bit smaller. But the thing that we keep saying to ourselves and, you know, that we're going to, conversations we're having with artists is at the end of the day, we're there for the spoken word. We're there for the text. We're there to serve the play. And so we're maybe in the past, we would have gotten really excited and built a gigantic set for a little play. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we're going to do that. And truth be told, I don't know if it, I don't think it's going to harm the play. I think we're going to find ingenuity in constraint. And I also think artists are going to come back with a renewed passion to just make the thing happen that I'm really looking forward to. I think we're going to simplify things. I also think, look, we're looking at different producing structures. You know, we've made the decision going forward for our subscription shows. We're only going to rehearse five days a week when we're in the rehearsal room, no longer a six day rehearsal week. You know, I think people are going to want to come back from this time where we've been with our families or with our friends or whatever, with or with ourselves, like just reading. Like, I think there's going to be a deeper respect for a personal life that I think is going to help the work, actually. I think there's going to be more of a clarity of mind. That's my hope. Yes, because there's been many organizations, not necessarily theater, I mean, of, of, of all sorts of walks that would fight this uh, working from home dynamic yeah. and yeah. that the employee was not going to be as productive as having, you know, they're behind on the seat in the building. And that thankfully has proven to be wrong and that people yeah. are working even more from home. I think that's right. I also think this technology will allow us to work smarter. Mm -hmm. I think about production meetings. If we have artists who don't live in the area, they can zoom in, they can show us designs we can work through. Designers are going to know how to change designs on the fly on their computer on Zoom that we can see. We can take 
a laptop down to the shop and show them how the set is being, like what the set looks like, yeah. or, the, or a costume designer could be zoomed into a costume shop and look at sort of fabrics. I mean, I think it's, I think my hope is, one, we're never going to lose that sort of like live in person, very sort of rudimentary feeling of theater that is that is so ephemeral. But I think this technology is going to help us do it better, to some extent, do it cheaper. Yeah, which is, yeah, again, something that's going to be needed in order to bounce back to whatever thing is waiting for right. us. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, also the La Jolla Playhouse, and I have it here, so I don't want to chop it or butcher yeah. it. As of September 2nd, La Jolla Playhouse came uh, with an anti-racism action plan. And uh, what I appreciate about this is that you put it up on your website for everyone to see, and it's a two-pager. So mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's good. You can go through it, you can read about it, and not have to scroll through a whole manifesto of 50 pages, which I'm assuming that this is a working document. And I'm just going to mention a few things and then we can dive in. Artistic mm -hmm. production opportunities, artistic developmental opportunities, artistic residency opportunities, internship and fellowship, producing practices, which is also a very um, delicate subject in the theater world, the producing practices, as well as representation, institutional practices, as well yes so what what can you say about this eric <laughs> it's a whole other episode no i mean I, I i mean here's what i will say when that when when the protests started happening we all felt like we needed to do something you know and i think what i did was i just pulled together the other bipoc people on staff and, and honestly it literally was just to say how are you doing what do you need and how are you holding up and what do we need to think about as an institution? That's where we started. We started with the people of color on staff. And coming out of that, I was like, let's generate a list of things that we just need to think about as an institution. I took that list to Chris and Debbie and the other um, senior staff that I work with. And I said, here are the things that I'm hearing from our staff that we need to really look at. And that's been the blueprint by which we've sort of gone on this journey. And so... Pretty quickly after that, we identified a consulting group to work with us to do anti-racism training. Great consulting company called Revolve Consulting, who's San Diego based. We started, um, yeah, they're wonderful. We started um, AIA, our Accountability and Inclusion Alliance, which is staff driven, run by two members of our staff. And I, I want to say about half our staff is on board for the Alliance. And really what we've been doing is, again, deepening the unpacking of what do we as an institution want to start working on. Mm -hmm. um, we're also in the midst of, in that, in that group, creating a vision and value statement, which is going to guide the next step of our um, action plan and things that we didn't think about for the first step of the action plan. And so it's been a very staff-driven, staff-focused initiative because if you don't change the core of who you are as an institution, none of this work that we're going to do that's about programming or bringing artists, more diverse artists in or diverse artists, uh, diverse board members in will work because we haven't actually hit to the core of who we are as an institution with the people who work there on a daily basis. And so that action plan is our first step. And what we wanted to do was make accountable statements. We wanted to say, here are the tangible things 
the immediate actions we're going to take to start the work. And I'm deeply proud of it. And it's a, it's a deeply imperfect document. And it's a document that's going to change because this work will never end. But we have sort of really dug in and started this work in an exciting way. And the thing that gives me hope is that I'm seeing so much more cross-departmental conversation, not just about um, this work, this anti-racism work, but about the future of the theater, about things that we should be thinking about when we come back that don't even pertain to anti-racism work. That's the change. That's where change is going to happen when you start seeing all of those different departments that could get siloed actually having conversations about this core thing, because that's where we're going to hold ourselves accountable internally is because everybody's on board and everybody actually feels comfortable having a conversation with each other. And we've gone through three rounds of training already with, with Revolve. Our board has started training with Revolve. So we're, nice. we're moving. I mean, it's exciting. Not that there aren't stumbling blocks along the way, you know, well, with, uh, everything. with everything. And, and I'm, I'm deeply grateful to We See White American Theater. I think it's really opened up a lot of conversations, not just for us, but sort of um, around the country. And there are a bunch of things in that document that were crucial. We actually started sort of a lot of our action plan before the document came out. But when that document came out, it opened up a bunch of different things that we hadn't even thought about. And so that, that idea sharing is important. And I, and I hope that in our own way, this action plan that we're sending out into the world is, you know, info idea sharing to other theaters around the country too, just as we've been reading everybody else's, you know, who have released an action plan, what they're doing. And it's sparking conversation. And so it is a glimmer of hope that I have for the industry, but I certainly have a lot of hope for us as an institution that we're going to make these changes finally. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I will say, you know, because they write the podcast, it's called From Another Zero, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. Yeah. But, you know, this work isn't starting from zero for us. It's starting from another zero because there have been other people of color on staff who have been pushing to make a lot of this work happen. We have a boss and Chris, you know, bosses and Chris and Debbie who've listened to that, who have also had their own ideas to push push this work forward. And we're starting from another zero on, on the work that all of these people have done. Mm-hmm. But now we're saying it has to be consistent. It has to be accountable and we have to keep building on it. We can't just do the same thing exactly. we've been saying that we're doing diversity wise, it has to grow. I'm going to ask you the same question I asked you in the beginning with representation yeah. and it's going to sound like you're responsible when you're not, but it's because you're my guest and yeah. I hear, uh, what do you think about it? But I need a little context before yeah. I ask this question uh, back in the day, which is, which was a while ago, um, La Jolla Playhouse approached me and said, we want to have a conversation where people come over here and present their work and we want to go down there and see work and just talk to artists Mm -hmm. because we're in a border and I can't believe that we're not doing more of this. So I love that because we started those conversations a while ago and it was wonderful and productive and we brought a couple of plays in -hmm. Spanish over there and we just... Uh, they just let me be in my element. And, uh, and for that, I will always be grateful with Michael Rosenberg, who was the, um, yeah, yeah. The, the chief back then. But why do you think, Eric, that 
it had to happen a pandemic and a public lynching in order sure, sure. for everybody to in in speaking of our world the theater world because that's what we're focusing on to start uh, developing new values and new mission statements and the diversity and stuff like that versus oh, doing it always yeah I see. I ask myself that question every day. That's why I say I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. I think about it every day. No, I mean, and you know, it's funny because I, uh, I, I am at once grateful for the work that I'm starting to see people do around this. And yet there is part of me that's frustrated that we've been doing this. Some of us have been doing this work for a while and it never got traction. I think the pandemic leveled everything in its own way where we're all home, we're all raw, we're all going through this thing together. And then I think the events that happened, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, et cetera, like those aren't new events. Those have been happening forever. Mm -hmm. And yet I think because we're all raw, we're all in this place, there's this moment of like, oh no, no more of this. <laughs> yeah. And that's exciting, right? I have this fear that that, fire is diminishing over time as people go back to that place of being desensitized to it. I hope not. It's why we started the work as early as we did. And we said, we need to start training immediately. And we said, we need to start an alliance where we're holding ourselves accountable. We need to release our action plan. We were one of the first big theaters out with an action plan. All of those is because we also know we're going to go back into the theater at some point. And then there's a whole set of scary things that we're going to need to face just to figure out how to get an audience and a cast in. But we've committed to doing this work and we can't lose sight of it. Mm -hmm. And the way we don't do that is doing it now, of laying out the groundwork, of, of getting the accountability thing out. And I think we as a country, we as people who live in this world, need to start doing that accountability work because things are going to keep shifting and shaping over time. And I hope we don't lose sight of the passion that was there a couple months ago. And, and we will if we don't do real tangible things and account and things that we are holding ourselves accountable to. The challenge is we all, we get busy. We have that life too. things happen. That too. And, you know, and some of us can forget it. And me as an Asian American person lives a very different life than somebody who's black in this country, you know, and like, but I, there are things that I know that I need to make sure like, okay, so I'm going to be doing, I'm going to do this every month. I, for, I believe in like repetition and structure because that's how you change something. You know, our consultants talk a lot about people-proofing plans. That's why our, our action plan, are, it's literally a list of actions, and that's it. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of pontificating on the thing. It's like, boom, here are the things we're doing, because that's people-proofing the plan. Yeah, There's no wiggle room in it. It shouldn't be. It, sh it shouldn't be. But that's, but, but, I, but yeah, it, it's, I, I've had moments of frustration about it. I, okay. sit in, I sit in meetings sometimes with people from around the country, and I think, why haven't you started yet? Time is running out because you're going to start losing interest in making these diversity changes in your organization. And there's so and much going on and in the there's, world. There's so general. much, and the, you know, and there, there's part of me that fears they're, they're just running out the clock. I mean, it's funny when the pandemic started, I was in a conversation with a bunch of different leaders from around the country. And they were like, you know, one of the questions was like, what is your biggest fear? And this is before all the protests started happening. And I said, my biggest fear is we're sitting in a meeting and we were all brought together because we were 
doing diversity work and that diversity work's gonna go out the window because the new fear is how do we keep the doors open and how do we get an audience back and how do we sell more tickets and how do we raise more money? And then the protest hit two months later and I thought, well, you can't not do it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And now I go, some people haven't started yet. It's a real thing. I'm a person of color working at a predominantly white institution who is very mouthy. So, so, so they, they've the got next? me High too. Five. You know, yeah. you know, they've yeah. got me, and it's not just me. There are there are you know nine of nine of nine of us. And the thing that I'm I'm I'm, which gives me hope at least for the organization that I work at, is that it's not just the people of color saying we need to do these things. It's 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 my you know fellow uh, coworkers who are white who are like we need to do this we need to do this now we need to set these things up have we thought about this have we thought about that and you go, and you, and that's where you go oh okay this work is actually sinking in because I'm not pushing it anymore and I said it pretty early on I was like I can't push it I'm tired I can't push it I'm the one senior staff member of color I can't take all the calls I can't tell us where we're gonna go I have ideas let's talk about those but we all need to do this together. And about, you know, pretty quickly, I, I saw the rest of the staff go, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And people start talking up and, and having ideas and, and, and pushing each other. And I thought, oh, okay. I don't, it's not just me anymore. This is great. This is, this means we're going to make change. Yeah, exactly. That, that's why I wanted to ask you because yeah. from where we sit or where we're at, it's something that's been ongoing forever, but we were viewed as mouthy or, oh, here we go again, or, oh my God, yeah. we're doing this. And it was kind of like an eye roll thing. But then also when you discussed it and it was discussed back, it happened to me and they said, oh, you think that we're this, 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 and this. I'm like, oh, well, now that you say it, it sounds even worse. <laughs> And then I would feel self-conscious. And again, I wouldn't know how to, because I've always been mouthy and I've always gotten in trouble in Tijuana and in Mexico where I was before. It's not a country country thing. It's me, a person thing. And uh, so I, I didn't know. And that's why I'm asking other people like me this question. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but it's also the other thing I will say is I think in this time because we're talking about it more, there's less tolerance for it. I'm also seeing myself being even more outspoken, and I'm mm-hmm. seeing other people of color that I work with, be it at the theater or around at other theaters, be more outspoken. Because I think what we're also doing is we're checking in with each other more. Like there are, we, I have like weekly, bi-weekly calls with other sort of people in my position who are of color around the country. There are a bunch of us in San Diego who are of color who work at sort of the more predominantly white institutions who have a conversation, you know, every other week. And so there's a, um, it's brought us together to support each other and make sure we're okay that I think has allowed us all to go, okay, I'm going to keep pushing. I'm going to keep making, making my voice heard in a more direct way. And that's been great. That's good. And now that we're talking about that from another zero and keeping on (laughs) hand, (laughs) what has been your other zero or zeros? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think as I think about that, I think it goes back to this idea that the work that I've been doing and the work I continue to do 
didn't start at zero because of the people who came before me. Mm -hmm. This is like a really big thing I've been thinking about because there aren't a lot of us of color in the field. Um, and there isn't always a lot of opportunity for mentorship. And so, you know, somebody has said, somebody asked me like, why do you do this work? And I said, because for a lot of the time in my career, I've walked into a room and been the only person of color, certainly usually the only Asian person. And my hope is that after me, the per whoever replaces me or gets into these jobs in 10 years doesn't ever experience that again. So that's where I really think about from another zero is like my place in this legacy of people of color who have worked in this field who have broken down the doors and the barriers. And those of us who continue to do that. So the next generation of people will continue to do things, but it'll be better from another zero than the zero that the people before me started or the zero that I started at. Mm -hmm. um, I've been really thinking about that sort of like continuum of those of us who work in the field who, who don't see a lot of people like us, but probably see more people like us than the people who came before us. Hopefully that's, that's my case. hope. That's yeah. my hope. Mm -hmm. With me, it was that, that, that thing that, oh my God, you're on the second floor. You're a Mexican woman working on the second floor, not the first floor or the basement. And it would, yeah. instead of making me proud, it would make me pissed. But yes, <laughs> to your point. It could be both. It could be oh. both. I have both. I have both sometimes. Pissed and proud. More pissed than and, proud usually, but yes. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, we ask, and this is something that I love because I always say it episode after episode and people, if I have, I hope I do, people that listen to every episode, they're like, oh my God, this woman sounds like a broken record, but I say it, you know, for new people that are coming on board. And I asked you and you were very formal and send, send your I'm structured answers. you told I told you I'm super structured I love super structured. it and send and send me your answers in writing and you say that you have two restaurants that you I love do. spicy city spicy city in Kearney Mesa and shawarma guys in South yeah. Park tell me about them yeah yeah, Spicy City is my favorite Chinese food place in the city. It, but you, but you have to as as the as Chinese. the name, yeah, as the it's name, to, I feel as spicy. the name says, it is spicy. Ooh, so they do this thing called. I'm telling you right now, go get it. It's called deep fried chicken cubes with hot pepper. It is like incredible small pieces of deep fried chicken with a lot of hot peppers all over it. Number one. Number two, they also have something called the Szechuan style spicy fish, which are giant hunks of fish cooked in just with hot chilies. It is, it is my favorite thing. Do you down it that, you know, down it with like no, I don't. rice or something? That yeah, do it with the rice, get some of the string beans, mm -hmm. eat a good meal. It is really good, but it is like, it is authentically hot. So recommendation number one, recommendation number two is actually a food truck in South Park called Shawarma Guys, which is, I, which is parks like right outside a liquor store. But they, three things to recommend. I love eating. My husband and I love eating. I'm telling you, here we go. So they have, they do something called Shawarma Fries, which is like carne asada fries, but with chicken shawarma. Oh my God. Yeah. Salivating. It's incredible. Uh -huh. uh, they also have the best falafel in the city. Giant hunks of really delicately fried moist falafel 
And then they do this beef shawarma pita, but with Wagyu beef. <gasps> and it is like the greatest thing. And they, and they spice to They give this hot spice dipping sauce, which is, it is, I, I can't recommend it enough. Go both those places. And they're super affordable, party meals, really good ingredients really good mom and pop shops. Oh, nice. In Spanish, yeah. we say that, you know, when you eat really spicy food, the yeah. invoice comes out elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had that problem. <laughs> so, so I'll check it out. I'll check it out and I'll yeah. tell you guys in the, you know, yeah. in the upcoming episodes. Yeah. And then uh, for your cause, you have the 4th District Senior Resource Center and Let America Vote. Oh, yes. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so 4th District Senior Center is a a senior center that serves the senior Black community here in Southeast San Diego. Um, I met them, God, seven years ago when I worked at the Globe and we launched Globe for All. Mm -hmm. And I was in charge of finding community partners. And I saw a YouTube video of their line dancer doing a number. And I was like, I need to meet them immediately. And Mm -hmm. um, so I met with Rosemary Pope, who's the woman who runs the organization single-handedly, and just fell in love with all of them, um, and and worked really closely with them when I was at the Globe on Globe for All, and they made me line dance with them. I judged like a Easter bonnet competition. I judged a Halloween competition with them. I've had many a Friday fish fry with them. Oh yes, um, fish fry. They're they're always under resourced, and they do an incredible job of serving that community. So anything you can give to them, please, please do. They're remarkable, remarkable people, be it time or money, et cetera. They need both. And um, once you meet Miss Rosemary Pope, uh, you will forever be sort of in her heart. And um, so so that, and then my sort of more national one is Let America Vote. And this is an organization working deeply to fight voter suppression. DC Abrams is one of the advisors. Um, we are heading into a very scary period of time and voter suppression is a very real thing, and this election is going to dictate a lot. So mm-hmm. uh, any money people have to donate to um, end fight voter suppression, please do. Of course, the other thing I will say is, which I didn't write in my email, is that there are a lot of theaters around San Diego. Of course, if you have money and you would like to donate to the Ohio Playhouse, we would appreciate it. Um, but there are a lot of theaters all around San Diego who need help. And so anything anybody can give to any theater they love, um, they would have my deep, deep appreciation. I want to make sure that we all, not just us at the Playhouse and of course at the Globe, my friends at the Globe, but that we all come back strong uh, when we can come back. And so um, any donation, again, time, money, whatever, um, every organization needs it right now. Yes, thank you for that. And my yeah. potato brain. Wait, and do you wait, wait, and do you have like a like a go like a whatever? Can people donate to you? Oh my god, I love it. No, I mean I haven't uh, thankfully gone uh, that. I'm not that bad, uh, like we say in Mexico. Uh, when you're a parrot, everywhere you go, you're gonna be green. So I'm doing public relations uh, okay. with a wonderful organization and we're working on census and humane society. We're working very, with very wonderful good. organizations. I'm not in theater, sadly, uh, but still I'm, I'm doing this wonderful work and I'm, I'm yeah. floating, my friend. I'm floating. Okay. okay. So, that's so that's Floating's good. Floating is better than treading. 
Yes, totally. I mean, <laughs> I do have to do stuff for this podcast that comes out of my own pocket, but that is also my way of okay. establishing another voice, a necessary voice and a platform for artists and, and theaters like the one that you work in. So, so that's enough it. for me for now, but thank you for asking. And my potato yeah, brain, it was like 2013 or 14 when I came uh, um, across uh, the La Jolla Playhouse and it was also uh, Dana Harrell who uh, brought me on board. Yeah, our dear friend Anna, yeah. yes. She's uh, wonderful. Shout out to her. Shout out to her. Very creative woman. Thank you, Eric. Of for course, oh my gosh, anytime. Time coming along and letting us know what's happening over there and with you and with all these changes, necessary changes, and for being so honest too. You too. Happy <laughs> to anytime, Alejandra. Yay! Please listen, please support, and we will hear each other on the next one. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Eric, for being on The Zero, and thank you for listening once more. Again, follow us on our Instagram, From Another Zero Zero With Number, Facebook, From Another Zero Zero With Number, and our YouTube channel. And I also want to let you know that we do different things that surrounding events like we discussed with Eric, like they do for their shows, uh, we're doing surrounding activities, surrounding activities for the podcast, which is uploading these Zoom calls on YouTube so more people can listen to the content or view the content if that is their preference. We're also doing Instagram Lives. We just did an Instagram Live with Jose Solis, arts critic, and we talked about BIPOC art critics, diversity, racism in theater and privilege. So that is that is a wonderful live that we had. We had some interaction with a couple of viewers too. So that's, that's on our Instagram. So we're going to be doing more activities like that. Um, I love my guests and obviously I am aware of their schedules and their time. So not all of my guests are able to do an episode and an Instagram live. So that's why I'm very grateful to Jose for doing that. We are also doing interviews from Another Zero. Those are exclusively for YouTube. We have one up there with Viet Cadeau, who's a programs manager at the Old Globe Theater. And we talk about Pam Farr Summer Shakespeare program, Summer Shakespeare Studio program, which is for teens. I think it's 14 to 17, something like that. And we talk about their work and studio that happened this summer. And we have uh, other interviews from Another Zero coming up and we want to bring more types of content to you so please that's why I want to hear from you I want to know what you think if you like it thank you so much share and follow us and if you don't like us or don't like the content please also let me know so we can continue to learn and grow my heart is full I'm, I've been a reporter since I was 16 years old I love doing it I love talking to people and I love bringing this work to you all so again thank you so much and remember that here we just don't start from zero we start from another zero we'll listen to each other soon have a great one